My name is Will Stevenson, and I have the awesome responsibility of bringing the Word of God to us this morning. The elders have graciously shared their pulpit with me, and I'm really thankful and glad to be here um, to preach to you. So please turn to Psalm chapter 3. If you're not familiar with where that is, just open about the middle of your Bible. It's before Proverbs and after Job, and we're looking for Psalm chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I'd like to pray for the preaching of God's Word. Holy Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. And so, Lord, now, would you bless your people? Would your word fill them up and cause us to be fruitful, that we would be a blessing to others? And ultimately, Lord, this morning through this ministry, your people would be encouraged and built up and it would all be done to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. David is the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the instruction of the Lord. David loves God's word. He meditates on it day and night. The Lord has planted him like a tree beside streams of water. He is fruitful. Everything that David does, he prospers. And that's because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. He is like when Tim Norton holds on to baby Levi's hands as he's trying to walk down the stairs. David is the anointed king of Israel. He has been placed on top of Zion. He is atop of God's holy hill in the holy city of Jerusalem. The Lord has decreed that David is his begotten son. And the Lord has made all of the nations and even the very ends of all the earth his possession. God has sworn to David and to his descendants that they will perpetually and eternally occupy this throne. God backs David. If you were against him, you will be destroyed by God's fury. And if you kiss the son, you will be blessed. Everyone who takes refuge in David and in God's king over all the earth will be blessed. So you may have noticed that I have summarized Psalms chapter 1 and Psalms chapter 2 and what they say about David. David is a very, very, very blessed man. But as we move from Psalm chapter 1 and 2 into Psalm chapter 3, you should be completely shocked. Look at the superscript, the introduction to the psalm. It reads, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And you can read about that amazing story in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 18, where we learn that Absalom has devised a plan to take over David's kingdom, to expel him from Jerusalem, and to kill him in the wilderness. And David's heart is heavy. This isn't the first time that David has been roaming in the wild, living in caves. In David's mind, I'm here again. What is he to do? 
But this time's even worse. Instead of Saul being out for his own life, it's his own son who wants to kill him. There's no respite in sight. There's danger around every corner. David has many foes and very few friends. The blessed man who was a strong oak, who was supposed to be sitting on the throne, he's out in the desert. And not only that, he's been run out of town by a very wicked man. Absalom is the chaff. He's like the dried husk of corn that's going to be blown away by the hot wind of God's judgment. His path will perish. The Lord says he laughs at him and he mocks him. And yet at this moment, at this point that the psalm is penned by David, the righteous are not winning. The wicked are triumphing in victory over God's anointed. The army of Absalom is closing in on David and his few followers. And a wicked man is about to crush the Son of God, the King. And the promises of God appear to be a lie. Where is God? And so David writes this lament in Psalm chapter 3. Please follow along. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I'm going to preach this sermon in four points. Point number one, David's lament. Point number two, David's reflection. Point number three, David's petition. And point number four, Christ's fulfillment. Point number one, David's lament. David's enemies wanted him dead. And again, seemingly the blessings of Psalms 1 and 2 mean that things should not have ever come to this. So what should we do then when God's blessings seem far off and the unrighteous seem to be winning? When the enemy seems to have the upper hand and the Lord seems to be far away, David begins by lamenting his troubles. O oh Lord, many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. The difference between lamenting and complaining is massive. God has been known to open up bottomless pits and swallow up complainers in his wrath. We don't want to be grumbling Israelites or whiny children. Complaining is wrong, but the Psalms teach us that to lament is good. So what is the difference? For one, complaining isn't directed towards someone in order to find an answer. Complaining is directed towards someone in order to assign blame. David doesn't do that. David laments his situation directly into the ear of God, 
Not because he thinks God is guilty of wrongdoing, but because he knows where his help comes from. That's why he goes to God to tell him his troubles. He addresses the Lord by name. He tells him about his troubles. He assesses his situation. He uses clear, honest language to describe it. And he asks God for help. It's the difference between a hungry child throwing a tantrum against his mother because she has let him feel hunger and a hungry child using clear language to explain to his mother that he's hungry. And so David laments, not complains, but laments to the Lord the situation that he finds himself in. There are enemies, not only that, but there are many enemies, which he states three times. Almost everyone is against David, including his son. And his son, Absalom, he has been patiently coming in and working the people's hearts away from David, prying their love and loyalty away from him and onto himself, so that not only is David's son against him, but the people of Israel have risen up against David. David is a reject. But notice that David doesn't only lament that these many foes are after his life, which they most certainly are. David is more distressed that they are after his soul. In the same way, there are enemies today who are after our soul. Our sinful nature is constantly waging war against ourselves to, to disobey the Lord, to sin against God, to do what we don't want to do. And without holiness, no one will see God. Another way the enemy tries to get at our soul is think about the culture that is constantly trying to discredit the existence of God or the reliability of the scriptures. People who forsake good doctrine shipwreck their faith. They die. But not only that, we are waging a spiritual war, not against flesh and, but, flesh and blood, but against demonic forces who want to sift us like wheat and cause us to forsake the name of Christ, to deny him when the times are too tough. And without Christ, we know there is no way to the Father. So while most of our enemies do not carry swords, and definitely some do, they are no less dangerous. And that's because the main goal of the enemies of God is not to kill us physically, but to kill us spiritually. And they do that by shaking our trust in the word of God. It's a trick as old as creation, isn't it? It's like when the serpent says to Eve, did God really say? And if you eat it, he doesn't mean you will really die. And God's holding out on you. My way is better. Just listen to my words, not God's words. In this instance, David's enemies are attempting to undermine the most important word of God to any of us. And that word is that God saves souls. Look at verse two. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. It's not enough to take away David's life, but they want to take away the only ally that he has left, his last friend. David, even the Lord is not for you. David's son hates him. Israel wants him dead. And now they want him to know that God has abandoned you as well. They are mocking the promise that God saves souls. A preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. 
of all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together. They would not make a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. David is afraid of a spear being thrust into his body. And that is a real reality that he should be afraid of. But he's more afraid of doubting that God will save his soul. It's all he has left. It's the last thread of the rope. Bearing the weight of that reality, that God might abandon him too, terrifies David. And so here, he laments not only that his life is in danger, but he laments to the Lord the anxiety, the fear. Lord, don't leave me. I can think of three lies the enemy uses to shake our trust in God's salvation for our soul. We don't want to give in to them. The first one is that there is no God. It's simple, they say. No one is going to save you from any of your troubles. When you die, you just die. We're all here by random chance anyways, so you have to figure it out by yourself. No one is going to swoop in and save the day. Superheroes aren't real. Neither is your God. So keep praying, keep squirming. No one is going to help you. The second way they try to undermine our trust in God's salvation is they say that God could never love someone like you. David's enemy might have very well said to him, think about what you did to Bathsheba and Uriah. You're a murderer and you're an adulterer. Why would God save someone like you? In much the same way, the enemy wants us to believe that we must clean up our act first before we come to God for salvation. It's a lie. The third way they try to undermine our trust and the Lord's salvation, probably the most powerful one, is that the enemy will often point to our circumstances to prove that we have been forsaken. Look at you, David. You're out floundering in the desert. Even your own son wants you dead. Everyone has forsaken you. Clearly, God has forsaken you. God isn't for you, or things would not have come to this. The saying goes that if you are suffering, it must be because God doesn't care to help you. Which moves us into point two, David's reflection. These attacks can cause our hearts to groan. And when, it, when that happens, we should lament to the Lord our troubles. Let him know, Lord, these attacks hurt <laughs> We don't stop there, which leads to another very important difference between lamenting and complaining. The one who laments doesn't stop at expressing the problem and leave it there. He goes a little bit further. The one who laments actually seeks help from God. A complainer likes to pout and wallow. They aren't looking for their problems to be solved so much as they want everyone to know how bad they're being hurt. And they want to assign that blame to the people around them. At some point in the lamenting process, though, the person who is focused on their problem begins to move their gaze onto the problem solver. It's not to say 
but there aren't still pain and difficulties in our circumstances. David's life is still in danger, and David is still very anxious for his soul. But there's a movement away from the problem and onto the problem solver. He leans into, he takes hold of, he remembers certain characteristics about God. He's like a hungry child who, after explaining his hunger, remembers that his mom always takes care of him. It's not like that with a complainer. We've all seen a toddler who throws a tantrum. They just can't seem to get their mind off of the pain and begin to move their attention to the fact that their mother loves them. They just hurt. and They never move off of it. This psalm, what it does so beautifully and so brilliantly, is that it gives us specific vocabulary for reflecting on God's character when our hearts are troubled. It prevents us from getting stuck in a tantrum. It's worth committing these memories, this, this verse to memory. It's so useful in times of trouble so that when trouble comes, you can remember that you have a reliable father. Follow along with me in verses three and four. I love that verse three starts with but. My situation is this, but you are a shield about me. David doesn't have a shield big enough to fend off all of the enemies who are after him. He's in danger from every direction and at all times. He cannot make himself feel safe, but he has a God who can protect him. He has a God who has a big enough shield. That God is his shield. He goes on to say, you are my glory. David does not trust in himself for salvation. Look at his circumstances. How could he trust in himself for salvation? He's not gonna receive any glory through this. If he makes it out of this, it's only because God showed up and showed out. And if God doesn't do this for his glory, David's a dead man. So, praise God, you are my glory, David says. He says, you hear me when I cry out to you. Sorry, I skipped one. You are the lifter of my head. David's enemies have him feeling defeated and distraught. I mean, think about the sheer humiliation of going through the situation, from going to the highest of highs to crashing in the lowest of lows, where again, the people of Israel and his own son are after his life. But no matter how discouraged and ashamed he feels, he is filled with confidence and strength when he beholds the kindness of God, the one who lifts his head. He goes on to say, you hear me when I cry out to you. This is an astonishing observation from David. We're just saying, dear refuge of my weary soul, about how we can pray to the Lord at his mercy seat. Well, this time in salvation history, in the old covenant, there were processes or there were rituals in which you went to the Lord. There was a temple and a mercy seat and you have to bring sacrifices. David can't do any of that. As David was leaving Jerusalem, they were taking the ark with him and he said, no, leave it. It belongs in the holy city of God. If God will bring me back to it, then I'll go back to it and pray. And if he doesn't bring me back to it, I'll be out here in the wilderness. He will do what seems best to him. But he prays. He cries aloud to the Lord and he knows that the Lord hears him. That's astonishing. The Lord gives his ear to the righteous. He listens to David. 
And David needs that now more than ever. So even though the temple is 100 mile, miles away, God can hear him. It says, you are seated on your throne on your holy hill. It's not only that God is listening, but that he is seated in a position of authority and power. God is able to hear David's problems, but he's also able to solve David's problems. Not only that, but David is recognizing that even his own troubles do not fall outside of the jurisdiction of God's sovereign authority. No trouble comes to David without God's permission. If you're familiar with the story, everything that's being bared out in David's life now is a direct result of a curse that was prophesied to him by the prophet Nathan after the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah. He said that the sword will never depart from your house. And this is, it's bearing out. So why is David suffering? It's not an encouragement to say that I suffer and God can't stop it. David says it's encouraging that I, suffering because, that I suffer because I know that none of this is outside of God's will and control. God is totally sovereign. He is seated on his holy throne, on his holy hill. God, or David worships a big God who can help him. This is David's reflection. So we see that he has moved from lamenting his situation to trusting in a person. And I just want to ask you very simply, do you know God like that? Is God your shield? Is he the one who lifts your head? Is God your glory? Are you acutely aware that the ear of the sovereign of the universe hears you, listens to you, and is always doing you good? Do you know that? Our immediate circumstances often blind us to this reality. Our emotions can get very crazy and be blinded. So sometimes what we have to do is exactly what David does here. There's a sense in which he's preaching to himself instead of just listening to himself. Problems come and emotions overflow and he lets out his lament. But he has to make a concerted effort to focus on the God who loves him and who will help him. He has to preach to himself, no soul, God is like this. God is reliable. He will save you. But even now, we can't stop at just reflecting on the character of God. We have to go a little bit further, which brings us to point number three. David's petition. Following closely on the heels of recalling God's character is a movement to petitioning God to act. We've already seen in verse four that David acknowledges that God hears him when he prays and that he rules the universe. So with that truth in mind, David very naturally petitions God to help him, to do something for him. And I think verse seven gives us the content of what that petition is. This is what he asked the Lord to do. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Now those first two statements, the way they're phrased, could sound very strange to us. We don't often think of making demands of God. God, you better get up, I need you to go over there, and I need you to save my butt. It's not something we would think about saying to God. But that would be a mistake. I don't think that's how we should hear David to be saying this. He's not making demands of God. It's more like someone crying out in desperation for help. 
It's like someone drowning out in the ocean, screaming to be saved. They may not say please and thank you and follow all the right etiquette, but that's because they're drowning. They're not typing an email. It wants to be saved. And actually, the Lord is far from dishonored from that sort of speech. He is very honored that our, our natural instinct would be to cry out to God for help instead of seeking everything else first. Once we've run through Google and run through all of our contacts and done everything we can do, now I'm going to turn to the Lord in prayer. That's more dishonoring to God than crying out to the Lord and saying, Arise, O God, save me, O my God. So we should see that a desperate petition to God is uh, the right thing to do when we're drowning in our troubles. But just what is it that David wants the Lord to arise and do for him? Again, to put it very simply, he wants the Lord to save him. And by asking God to save him, David is simultaneously asking God to strike the enemy and break the teeth of the wicked. You need to think about this. Notice that salvation and wrath are intrinsically connected. They're two sides of the same coin. Unlike the drowning illustration, God's people aren't being attacked by inanimate objects. They're being attacked by enemies. We are asking God to actually punish offenders, to punish the wicked who are harming us, to hear the calls of his people and save them from the unrighteous. David wants God to stop Absalom dead in his tracks. This is one of the central themes of the whole Bible. Look at the way the father of John the Baptist describes the salvation of God's people. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. The horn of salvation that was raised up, who came from the servant of David, he came to destroy enemies to deliver people from the bad guys. They're one in the same thought. Salvation comes through judgment. I could say this another way. Let's just look at what we've already looked at in Psalm chapter one and two. David is just asking God to bring to pass what's already been established in Psalm one and two. He's saying, save me, God. Blow the chaff away. Remove sinners from the congregation of the righteous. Terrify the enemy in your fury. Break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a piece of pottery. Bring blessing unto me as I take refuge in you while you give justice to the enemy. The Lord hates evildoers and he will most certainly stop them. The Lord brings salvation to his people through judgment on the unrighteous and that is supposed to cause us to lift our heads, 
That should give us courage and give us strength. Imagine David's fear of being hunted night after night after night. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve it. He's the righteous that we've already talked about. And yet, imagine the peace that comes to him knowing that the hunter has been destroyed. He's not being hunted anymore. He's free to go back to the temple and worship his Lord. That's salvation. That is salvation. Nonetheless, I'm sure you feel this in your heart. I hope you do. That's not an easy thing to pray about another human being, let alone your own son. David saw no contradiction in saying, Lord, you strike my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked, and my, my son, my son, my son is dead. He has been judged and he's dead. The sorrow of judgment on another human being and the joy that there is freedom to worship the Lord without enemies, no contradiction. It's salvation. It's tough. So we pray that, Lord, I, I hope that there's no enemies. I hope that everyone is brought to salvation through repentance, not, not judgment. I don't, I don't prefer judgment. But at the same time, Lord, we're gonna worship you and there will be no more tears and no more suffering and no more pain because you've dealt with the enemies, all enemies. We have to think about that really hard and pray about it. Evil must lose, it must stop, and it will. Either the rebellious will give up the fight or they'll be crushed in judgment. And we must understand, brothers and sisters, that both outcomes are in the hand of the Lord. And we will take either one because it guarantees peace for his people and worship of our God and his glory. We will serve God without fear and holiness and righteousness forever. That brings us to verses five and six, which are the center of the psalm. The stanzas in the center are often there for the sake of emphasis. And the essence of these two verses should be the apex of any lamentation. So we see that he's moved from lamenting his troubles to trusting in the character of God to petitioning God to act. And now verse five and six shows the fruit of his trust, incredible trust. That even though he still seems to be in great trouble, and God says that he will help them, and circumstances say another, he trusts him. And that's because David is more sure of the invisible future promises of God than he is of the invisible present promises. Sorry, sorry, the visible present troubles that he's enduring. He's more, he's more sure of the invisible than he is of the visible. That's why he says in verse six that he will not be afraid of many thousands of people who are trying to hurt him. We should not be afraid of our enemies either. But David goes further. He's so sure that God will answer his petition that he goes to sleep. I don't know about you, but my eyes would be glued to the mouth of that cave for days and days and days on end until something gave. But he trusts him. It's incredible. He goes to sleep. And wouldn't you know it, that David woke again because God answers prayers. 
it says the Lord sustained him. And I think that that's even more incredible. That God is that reliable. The way the story bears out in the end, Absalom receives judgment and dies. And David dies of old age. The Lord delivered him. He did it. He did the impossible. And so that's it, right? Problem solved. David was suffering. He's lamented to God. He's trusted in his character. He petitioned to God. He rested in his promises. No more enemies. No more anxiety over his soul. No more fear for life. That's the formula. Is that what we're looking for? Well, go home, put that into use, and you should have no more troubles ever again. Well, yes and no, actually. But to understand this, we need to understand this psalm in view of Jesus Christ, which brings me to my final point, the Christ's fulfillment. Jesus, the eternal and sinless Son of God, took on the likeness of sinful flesh and dwelled with man. He preached the word of God and did many miracles and signs to show his authority. For this reason, many foes rose up against him to kill him. And Jesus could have called down a legion of angel armies. He could have dashed the nations to pieces right then and there, had the authority to do it, but he didn't. At his first coming, he did not come to bring judgment, but he came to pay the ransom price for sinners. And so God delivered him into the hands of evil men. And as they were hanging him on the cross, Jesus became the mocked and forsaken king of Israel. They told him that there was no salvation for him and God, saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the son of God, come down from that cross. Oh, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from that cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him and see if he desires him. And in a way, mocking him that God would not save him, in a way they were right. Astonishingly correct. Everything about the situation screams that God has abandoned his son and if he can't keep his promises to his own son, who can he save? And so while Jesus hung there, he prayed to him. He cried out to the Lord on his holy hill that he would hear him and answer his prayers. And he didn't. God did not answer him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He left him there. And he died. No relief. But when the time was right, the Lord his God proved that he was still his shield, that he was his glory, the lifter of his head. Because even when he was made to sleep in death, Jesus woke again, for the Lord sustained him. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has made a refuge available to all of us. For while we were yet the enemies of God, God loved us and sent Christ to take on our sins unto himself. Instead of our cheeks being struck and our teeth being broken, Jesus's were. He received the wrath that he didn't deserve, but that we deserved 
as the enemies of God. And through judgment on the sinless Son of God, the enemies of God can now receive the blessings of God. If you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved from your sins. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And even though this is true, yes, our troubles are solved in Christ, we still have to wait. David had to wait in the desert for months. Jesus had to wait in the grave for three days. And you and I will suffer for a time. But we will not suffer forever. If God can save from death, then what enemy can remove you beyond the reach of God's saving arm? What can stop God from pulling you out of the grave? Nothing. But not only will we be raised from the dead. What's beautiful here is that we will be raised from the dead, but also our enemies will be defeated. What good would it be if when you die and you're raised from the dead, all the enemies are still here, all the suffering just recommences, all of your problems are right back where they started? Would that be comforting? Is that salvation? But be comforted as well that vengeance belongs to the Lord. When Jesus comes back at the end of this age, he's not coming to pay a ransom. He's bringing his sword and he will save his people by judging the wicked. Every drop of suffering that you have endured, have endured will be paid back in full. The enemies of God's people will be flooded by the wrath of God. And those who have taken refuge in Jesus will be safely aboard the ark of Jesus Christ, our refuge. Have people spoken all sorts of evil against you because of your faith? Have your own brothers and sisters or parents turned against you because you trust in Christ? Are you weary from another day of chopping off your hand and plucking out your eye in the battle against sin? Is your heart sore from another day of crucifying the flesh, dying daily in pursuit of your Lord? Have your circumstances not improved? Are you poor? Are you tired? Are you afflicted? Are you cast down? Are you ashamed? Are you humiliated? Are you hurting? Rejoice with God, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children. And he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hates him, and he cleanses his people's land. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it is for those who trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you do, God is your shield. He's the lifter of your head. Wait for him. You already have it in Christ. It's coming. His return is coming. Just a little bit further. Wait for him. And even if you die before he comes back and you wait for him there in the grave, be assured that you will wake again 
for the Lord sustains you. And when we wake up, there will be no more suffering, no more troubles, and we will know what it means for God to be our glory as we worship him in perfect harmony for eternity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, life is hard. Our troubles are many. But you loved us and you have made a way for us to be spared from the coming wrath. Lord, would you come soon? Save many. Bring many into the ark of salvation. Give us peace now. Lift up our heads and help us to trust that you are our glory, the one who will accomplish it all. Be glorified in our lives as we suffer well and finish the race. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.